Neil Rockine, welcome to another episode of Killer Cross-Examination, podcast that can be found on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, you name it. Um, how did I get here? I mean, not here in this seat, not here talking on this microphone, but how did I get to this point? It's a question that I get asked a lot. It's a question I get asked by clients. It's a question I get asked by fellow lawyers. I get messages from young lawyers who tell me that they're in this particular field or that particular field, and they want to, how did you get there, Neil? How did you get to that point? I want to do what you do. I want to get there. I want to be in that position. And I have said that this podcast is about my attempt to, to help you get more justice out of the legal system and more justice in your own lives. And if one of the ways for me to do that is to tell you my story, whether it's exciting or interesting or boring, and that's going to help people become better lawyers, and that's going to help people become better citizens, or is going to help them guide their children into particular careers or guide them out of particular careers? Or is this going to help them overall understand more about who I am and how I got here? Then I made that pledge and I'm going to fulfill that pledge. I'm going to tell you how I got here. Um, I, I was born in, um, in Detroit and People have asked, you know, like it wasn't Detroit like it is nowadays. Um, it was different. I went to school at Detroit Public Schools. Um, I lived in an amazing street growing up called Renfrew. And um, I, was, I was labeled a, a, a bad kid. I tell the story about the fact that I didn't learn to write. I have the worst handwriting imaginable. People ask me about my handwriting. They tell me I can't read your handwriting. They make fun of me for my handwriting. They still to this day don't, right? They, they're, they're blown away at how bad my handwriting is. And it's not because I never wanted to learn how to, um, how, to, how to write cursive. It's that I couldn't. I couldn't. I guess in that way I, was, I, had, some, I had a learning disability. But at the time, it was just considered to be a restless, uh, incorrigible kid who would sit in this chair and fumble and move around and bounce around. And I, I was, um, I, I just, I, I couldn't sit still. I couldn't concentrate. And so that was an impairment, a significant one. And I ended up, as a, as a result, I ended up um, getting tested by, I never, I remember that guy to this day, his name is Dr. Fagenbaum. And he tested me and concluded that I was um, ADD, attention deficit disorder. And I know that 
there's attention deficit disorder now, and it's become a very significant diagnosis, and people take Vyvanse or um, what other drug is there, Adderall or something else. But back then, it was novel. I mean, you're going back to when I was in elementary school. And at first, I was just labeled to be, you know, bad kid, couldn't concentrate, wouldn't listen, wouldn't pay attention, wouldn't sit still. And then I became that kid that during his lunch hour, I was the one kid that had to take a pill in the middle of the day. I took Ritalin. And I wasn't a good student. I never really in my elementary school, junior high school, and high school years, never really got over the, the sort of the, that insecurity that came from in, in, in my schoolwork. I just never got over that. Um, I guess, you know, unfortunately, sometimes when you end up being labeled or labeling yourself, that's sort of how you you end up. That's maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, but I wasn't a good student. And then my parents ended up moving us out to the suburbs. And I went from a neighborhood that I felt very comfortable in with friends and peers that were, were my best friends to a totally different environment. I went to an environment in the suburbs where I didn't know anybody. I didn't feel like I particularly fit in, didn't feel that I was particularly um, well-liked, didn't feel that I was somebody who was popular. And I think popularity is one of the worst things, one of the worst attributes that people can seek or bestow on others because you don't own it. The most popular kid in the school can end up all of a sudden being the least popular when the group turns on them. The most popular girl one day ends up being the target, you know, like mean girls, the, the next. So popularity is fleeting, but when you're a kid and you're not popular, it stings. And I think from that moment on, from those moments of being the kid that couldn't write, being the kid who had difficulty in school, being the, the kid who was plucked out of his school and moved out to a new uh, environment and not fitting in necessarily prepared me for a life of, of being uh, sympathetic to the underdog, sympathetic to the David who was always battling Goliath. I think that, that, that I relate to that. I could be in lockstep with, uh, in, I could be rallying, saying I'm for X, Y, and Z. Look behind me and there's, a hundred other people behind me and the, that group is all, you know, now turned its energy onto one or two people. And I feel some empathy in, in many cases towards the one or two. I, I think that prepared me for a life of defending, of being sympathetic and empathetic towards the little guy, towards the person who was the castaway, the cast out, the disregarded. I think it prepared me for um, a life of not feeling like I had to fit in. I've often said that criminal defense lawyers are not part of the system. We are not system components or system parts. And anybody who tells you that we are a part of the system is it, it, it totally mistakes what our purpose is. 
The purpose is not for us to be part of the system. Systems are supposed to work efficiently. And it's our goal as lawyers, as defense lawyers, to disrupt the system. It's our job to, to, to bring out the system's inefficiency, to bring out the system to, to, to be a wrench in the works, not to be a, a, a gear, not to be a well-working gear that just like, you know, Swiss, like a Swiss watch, it just kind of works perfectly. We're supposed to be the thing that goes get thrown in there and goes, eh, eh, eh. And so I think that my life sort of my upbringing as the, the person who felt like I was sort of the outcast in a way prepared me for being sympathetic to the outcast. And in society, particularly in the legal system, the outcast is the criminal defendant. It's the unpopular position. It's the unpopular person. It's the person pointed at. It's the person who's talked about as though they're not there. It's the person who sits at the, at the, the only person in the entire case that has, has, a, has a, a stake in the outcome, has chips in the pot, so to speak. If the, the defendant is acquitted, the police officer that brought the case, he doesn't go to jail. He doesn't pay the defendant's cost of, of defense. If the prosecutor brings the case, they don't, and they lose, they don't pay the cost of defense or pay or, or go to jail. It's, it's the defendant who's the outcast, the one who's talked about as though he were a, the defendant, the defendant. You'll hear prosecutors all the time refer to the accused as the defendant because they want to dehumanize him. They don't want to refer to him as Benny or Jack or Eddie or Vic or whatever, or Lucy or Lisa or Stacy or whomever that the person is sitting next to, to us. They want to call him the defendant. They want to call her the defendant, impersonalize him or her all the time. And so it's that position, that island that they are on, that I think that my upbringing helped me relate to. I am also the proud um, grandson of Holocaust survivors. My, my maternal grandmother and maternal grandfather, may they rest in peace, um, a blessed memory, were Holocaust survivors. Came from Vienna, Austria, and they have an incredible story that I will um, one day share more about, but they ended up here. My grandfather, having um, been released from Dachau, which was, as many of you know, or all of you should know, was a, was a concentration camp and ended up being a, a death camp. My grandmother was, uh, was an aristocrat in, in Vienna when she was growing up, and her father basically gave up everything to get her and my great uncle, as the story has been told to me, over to the United States. And um, they, they were completely uprooted in their, in their lives as, 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 as younger people. Ended up in New York City and then ended up together, and the rest is an incredible love story. But um, 
the, the look in my grandmother's eyes. She had a look. And I'm not talking about the look of somebody that, you know, that the, the grandma that's always got like the funny comment or that is always the sassy one. I had I, I had a booby like that I called her booby. That was I'll tell another story about her one day. But 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 my grandmother, my mother's mother didn't have that. She wasn't sassy. She was loving. She was loving. Nurturing. And, um, but she always had a little bit of a look in her eye, a little bit of fear in her eye, in her gaze. And my grandfather was stripped of his credentials. He had made it through um, almost all the way to, through medical school in Austria and then was prevented from finishing medical school because he was a Jew, had to leave the country in Europe ultimately, thank goodness he did, um, to to get away from the the Nazis and um, the um, Dachau and what would have probably been certain death if he um, hadn't gotten out and made it to the United States. And when he attempted to, to get credit for the time here in the United States, when he attempted to get credit for his education that he had completed back in, in Vienna, being so close to being a medical doctor, being, I think it, the story is some, uh, a very short amount of time, uh, maybe a semester or, or something away from being, having finished his studies, as I understand it. Um, he wasn't given any credit for any of those studies. He was, he was rejected because he was a, um, because he was a Jew, because there were quotas on the number of Jews that they would let into medical schools and because they wouldn't give him any credit. And he had to, to go about figuring out his, his life and his future in a different way. He did in public health, but not, but not getting any of the credit. And so in a way, that, that, um, that outcast, that being the little guy, being the, the lone sort of person against the, the one man or one woman against the storm, Being targeted, being victimized, being powerless or nearly powerless, and, and, and having the entire weight of the system in opposition to, to, to you is in my blood. Maybe I didn't always identify it there, but it was there. Maybe it lay dormant in me for a while because I felt the 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 loneliness or the the feeling of someone being like I said an outcast or being somebody who was um, um, not accepted. But at one point in life, when I began to sense my abilities, my power, my strength, my physical, my physical strength, my mental strength 
my oratory skills, my passion, my ability for storytelling, and my ability to take what people say and to figure out whether it's truthful or not and to break it down and tear it apart and shred it. When I got my power, when I sensed it, when I felt it, that that innate part of me that was always the victim, that had victim in his blood, that had outcast and singled out in his blood, that part of me came to life. I realized at some point that, that that's part of my genetic makeup. Brown eyes or hazel eyes or whatever eye color, I think they're hazel technically, and dark hair. And in my genetic code is the predisposition to feel sympathy and empathy for the person who is the David compared to the Goliath. The weaponless um, um, soldier against the, the arsenal of tanks and artillery. The man in the storm with no, no warm clothes, no umbrella, no way to, to get through it. That, that was triggered in me at some point. I know triggered is like a new word. People triggered, oh, the liberals are triggered or the conservatives are triggered. I'm not fucking talking about that. I'm talking about at some point that switch was flipped on. At some point, that little part of me that's in my blood came alive, that's in my DNA, turned on when I realized that I had the power to stand in front of the little guy, the targeted the oppressed, and I could actually use my power, my ability to, to protect those people. And I do that. So that's sort of how I, in part, how I got here. Um, that's sort of like I talk about it. It's in my DNA. There's an article that people talk about from years ago where someone had written a story about me and said, defending the little guys in my DNA. And the, and the, the reason I, I, I said it is because it is. To this day, I, I can't stand seeing the, the big, you know, there's a big, be a big crowd of people. And they're, they're, if I'm in a, in a place, for example, and I see people that are harassing a, a, um, um, somebody based upon a vulnerability or based upon um, that being outnumbered. Um, if I, if I look and I relate, I'll just walk by. I, I get in the middle of it. People who are close to me know that it's like, Oh, Neil, you're confrontational. Neil's confrontational. Neil's always looking for a fight. Yeah. I'm not looking for a fight, but I'm not, I'm not going to back away from one. If somebody needs defending or someone needs to have need, needs a, a shoulder next to him or needs a body next to him. It's what's motivated me for, for, and for, for part of my life, I probably couldn't even necessarily couldn't verbalize this. It took me a long time to sort of get to the point where I could verbalize all this and explain it. So can you do, can you get to the point where you defend people in court? It's not, you can, should you know your lawyer's story, how they got to this point in their life? Probably. 
Probably. Did the person get to this point just because it was like the next step? How did they end up? Do they, do they sort of rally to their, does your lawyer, when it's the more people that rise up against him and you, does your lawyer relish that? Does he see, is he, is he interested? Is he like get juiced and, and, and feel the, the, the blood coursing through his veins or her veins, the more people that rise up against you that choose to stand up against you or to try to bring you down when their police officers are huddling together with the prosecutor in the corner, does your lawyer feel like, you know, fuck them. They're all going to huddle together and try, or does your lawyer like get anxious or nervous and say, you know what, look at, they got to all huddle together with their appellate lawyers from the appeals division and the trial lawyers. And they got to have like a bunch of police officers there and they're all trying to get their story straight or huddled together or strategize. They all view themselves as part of like the home team. And, and they view me as part of the away team. Does your lawyer sort of relish going into the home into the, be the visitor or the away team and walk in there and pull out a victory? Or is he, because that's what it is. You have to have that in your blood. <coughs> People want to know how I got here. That's how I got here. My, 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 my passion was forged in fire. I had to. I had to defend myself when I was younger. I had to defend myself when later in, as I realized that it, I, I was sort of alone in a lot of ways, I had to, f to defend myself. And I always desired the ability to defend my grandparents. I wish that I had been a, a, a physically able to protect them when they were being targeted. So how do you get to this point as people say, well, I mean, what makes you like the Rockweiler? nickname that was bestowed on me years ago it's it's that it's 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 in my dna and the, there are a lot of lawyers out there and there are a lot of fine lawyers out there and there are a lot of lawyers out there that they don't have that feeling they don't take this shit personally they don't i take it personally you come after my client you're coming after me i take it personally they cheat, they hide evidence, they destroy evidence, they lie, they abuse their privilege or hide behind their immunity or a badge. I take it personally. You're trying to hurt somebody or showing reckless disregard for or callous disregard for, for, for someone who's turned to me, who feels alone, and I've chosen to, to, to speak up for that person. Yeah, that's fucking, I don't know what is more personal. 
That's as personal as it gets. So, yeah, I take it personally. But there are some lawyers who don't take it personally. There are very good lawyers that don't. They would have, have gotten into this field and this line, and they've chosen to become defense lawyers. Some maybe it was the next logical step in their career. Some maybe it was uh, they wanted to make money. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But some maybe did it because they, uh, they didn't have any other job. And they didn't have any other career prospects. So they just went out there and hung a shingle. Some feel it in their bones. So yet, reach made differently, reach brought up differently, reach developed differently. Each of us ends up in a different place, a different way of getting there. And to, to some of you that are listening, I think you have every right to sort of want to, to know your lawyer's background. I told you part of this podcast is to help you get better representation from your lawyers and to get more justice in the legal system. And part of that, I think you are entitled to ask questions of your lawyer about their, how did they get here? Have they ever been in a, in a fight? Have they ever gotten their ass kicked? Do they identify with the little guy? And any way you choose to ask those questions is a way that you can choose how many trials have they been in? Have they ever stood toe-to-toe, -toe, nose bouncing off of some police officers, you know, back and forth? Have they ever got into it with the judge? Have they ever got into it with the prosecutor? You know, when the guy walks in and says that he's the prosecutor's best friend and the judge's golfing buddy, that's the opposite of the mentality that I'm talking about here. I get along with many a prosecutor and I get along with many a judge, but no one's going to say that they're my golfing buddy and none are going to say that they're my best pal. <laughs> I'm sure of that. You, you ought to know that if you know anything about me, there's no one out there going, you know, that's my best friend. You know, the, and he, you know, he's my, he's my golfing buddy. No, nope, they're not saying that about me. But that's kind of what I'm, if your lawyer is one of those people, and they just sort of, they're, they're your, they're, they, they love the, the prosecutor, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my pal, my buddy. And they love the just my buddy, my pal, my pal, my pal, my pal. We're, we're family friends. She and I, we go to them. If, if that's, that's a different mentality. That's, that's a different mentality than where, what I'm talking about. When people want to know how I got here. That's not my mentality. I don't have that in my background because that would mean that I was a, like a popular, well-liked person. And that's not how I ever viewed myself. And that's not how I view myself now. That's not who I am. If you are with a lawyer that starts talking like that, I think you ought to sit back and wonder, like, what does that mean? There's the old story about um, the, the, the guy who said, you know, he would forget how it goes he was talking about how he would rather than hire the lawyer who's who's you know who's 
golfing buddy was the judge or who's best friends with the prosecutor or something like that. He's like, I don't need to do that because that guy's just going to get up to the to the judge or go in chambers and ultimately is not going to push the guy or push the prosecutor because, you know, they're like best friends with him. So there's going to be a point where his relationship with the judge, his golfing buddy, his relationship with the prosecutor, his best friend, that those are going to he can't cross that line or she can't cross that line because they're they're too friendly. And that's where the client may be sacrificed. There was a story about some guy says, you know, I don't, I don't need to hire that guy. I'd rather just walk into court with a rather walk into court without a lawyer with Randy, the macho man type, you know, shades on with, you know, a sparkly cowboy hat and a big old sparkly suit, the long tails and a cane and a, and a sparkly bow tie. And on his arm, like, you know, a bunch of, uh, uh, the story was told back in as a guy. So a bunch of showgirls on his arm walking in and he would say, I'd rather be that person sitting in the front row. Cause at least in that case, the judge is going to ask who the hell is that? Who the hell is that guy walking in there with the Randy macho man, savage hat and the, you know, the sparkly suit and the showgirls on his arm. Uh, who, who, what's his story? At least this story went like, you'd be better off being that than going in there with the, the, the lawyer, whose golfing buddies are best friends with the, the powers that be. That person didn't, doesn't have victim in their blood. They don't have an, an affinity to David versus Goliath. That person doesn't have the feeling that, I, that that person wants to be a member of the club. That person wants to be in the system. And if that's who you are and that's what you're about, that's totally fine. That's fine. Just know that those are your, that, that's where you come from. Or if you feel that way and you don't want to be that way, then you have to fight through that. And then you may have to pick purpose, purposely choose the most downtrodden and purposely decide that you want to reshape your, who you are and your, and figure out the stories that your, that clients have and relate to them. And if you are that person, I'm best friends with this one and best friends with that one, and you don't want to be that person, I don't think you're stuck with being with being that type of, of lawyer or that type of person. You can choose to say, I'm never going to mention it. I'm never going to tell another prospective client that I'm best friends with the judge or best friends with the prosecutor. I'm, and I'm prepared to, 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 to tell my best friend, the judge, and my golfing buddy, the prosecutor. I'm prepared to tell them that, you know what? We've got a relationship, but our relationship stops here because of my client. I'm going to, so please don't think that because we have that relationship that I'm going to somehow not push as hard as I can for my client. And if along the way you get mad, that's because you're not separating our out of court relationship with our in court relationship. But if you're that type of person, you need to know it. You need to identify that. If you're that kind of, if you have that personality, then you have to identify that about yourself. Or you have to just, I guess, just own it and decide that that's the kind of lawyer that you want to be. But that's not the sort of person that I was growing up. It's not easy to talk about these things about, like, you know, your childhood. It's not easy to talk about uh, not being popular or well-liked or being sort of the outcast. 
I have I have memories to this day of some of the rejections that I felt when I was in um, junior high school and high school. To this day, I still look back and I, I can think of some of the people who hurt me. Some of whom I'm, I guess I'm friendly with now in a way. Not real, but we're, we're acquaintances. We're friendly. We're in the same community. But boy, I think about a couple of them in particular saying things to me um, back then. And I, it transports me right teleports me right back in time the hurt that feeling of rejection it's still here that feeling of of being not the popular guy and so when i sit when i take on a case when i get involved in a case i can relate to the the feeling of ostracization or of, of being outcast, ostracized, pushed aside, talked about. I can relate. That's how I got here. I'm sure other lawyers have, have totally different stories, but that's how I got here. I mean, there's more, and I'll tell you more about my, my, the early parts of my career or my education and the early parts of my career um, in, uh, in another episode. The people have wanted to know what makes me tick. That's what makes me tick. That's what, um, that's what got me to this point. That's what started to, I guess that's what, that's when the Rockweilers started to be born. And I don't tell you this because I want to brag or I'm trying to shine my own apple or pat myself on the back or make myself feel better. It's not easy repeating some of these stories because they're painful memories of thinking back to myself or back to those days when I was younger. But they are part of my history. And to deny those things would be to deny part of who, how I got here. And because so many of you have asked how I got here or where does my passion come from? Um, I thought that I would open up and share some of those things with you. Um, sometimes um, the unpopular uh, kid, the unpopular kid has a lot to prove and has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. So I guess uh, in a way that's me chip right there and because I have that chip on my shoulder every time one of my clients is uh, goes through that I'm I'm like standing behind him or or in front of him or her and I can relate I always said that this podcast was going to be about me opening up to you and me helping you get more justice from your lawyers, more justice in the courtroom and more justice in your own lives. And in some ways, I, I hope that it has. For parents out there whose children are maybe ADHD or ADD or are, um, are struggling, um, look, I want you to know that there's hope. Um, don't give up. There's hope for them. 
They may be able to, as I did, turn that ADD or ADHD, that lack of filter that um, into, into uh, transform that into utilize that in, in the way that I do with some of the skills that I use in court and in, in my storytelling and in my ability to analyze cases. You know, I don't really, so there's hope. And I will tell you that if you're, if you, if you've made it this far in the podcast and you have a child who's ADD or ADHD and you want to reach out because you want some encouragement or you want to know more about my story, feel free to do that. Okay. Um, I, I want you to be able to reach out and to have some hope. Other parents I know who've gone through issues with their kids who were ADD or ADHD or attention deficit or hyperactive or whatever else um, at times did reach out to me and have talked to me. And so I want you to be able to do that. I want you to have that as a resource to be able to, to reach out to me. Um, and you can reach out to me. There's lots of ways to do it. You can reach out. Um, Neil at BrockheinLaw.com. You can reach out on our Facebook page on the Killer Cross Examination Facebook page, just like it sounds. Facebook, and then just you know, search for Killer Cross Examination, and you've got a page. You can find us on our website. And we've got emails and contact forms, and you can find us, our law firm, and you can reach out to me and ask. Tell me your story, and I'll see if I can give you some direction, or if nothing else, just give you some hope. Um, and if you're someone who has ADD or ADHD and you feel like you want to be able to reach out, feel free to do that too. Same way, same thing, same opportunity. Um, if you're a young lawyer and you want to get a better idea of whether your background sort of matches mine or comes close to mine, I shared that story with you and I, and I hope that in a way, my telling you my story has helped you sort of maybe get more in touch with your feelings about where you are in your, in your life and in your career. One way or the other, maybe it helped you realize that this, this is the path you should be on. Maybe it helped you realize that maybe there's another line of work that maybe is better suited to you and leave the, the, the red meat you know, going after and eating red meat you know, to, for, for guys like me. I don't know. But I told you the idea was to help you get more justice in your own lives and more justice in the courtroom. And I meant it. And I thought, because so many of you asked, how did I get here? How did the Rockweiler come to be? How did this become? How did I get to this point? That And people were asking my background as a child and as a youth. I thought maybe these stories could help, could help you um, learn more about yourselves and maybe learn more about your lawyer. Hey, this is Neil Rockhind. This has been another um, episode of Killer Cross-Examination. You want to find us? We're all over the place. We're easy to find. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, on the internet at killercrossexamination.com, on YouTube. We're here to stay. And we're here for you. Killer, killer. Killer, killer cross-examination.
criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheimer.